When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. I can't believe it. Two months of darkness. When we were in the bus, I told my husband, Vasya, we won't have to go to the toilet with a flashlight. Imagine spending weeks and months on end in a basement. Almost no natural light. Very little food. Very little water. Even less hope. As bombs rain down above you. I was afraid to even walk out and breathe some fresh air. This has been the reality for hundreds of civilians in the southern Ukrainian city of Mariupol. They were forced deep into the bowels of a local steel plant as Russian forces surrounded the city and shelled it relentlessly. In the last few days, thanks to an evacuation organized by the UN and the International Red Cross, some of those trapped have finally been allowed to leave. Now civilians evacuated from that Azovstal steel plant in Mariupol have now gotten out and they're arriving in Zaporizhia where CNN is on the scene. And you can see the unbridled joy of a family being reunited after weeks, possibly months apart. What is Some of those who escaped have been talking to today's guest, CNN International Security Editor Nick Peyton Walsh. We talk about this group of survivors who were able to get out of Mariupol. What's next for those left behind as Russia continues to attack the plant and why thousands of other Mariupol residents may have been evacuated back into Russian-held territory. From CNN, this is Tug of War. I'm David Ryan. Nick, we're talking Tuesday evening, Ukraine time. Where are you right now? Uh, In Zaporizhia, in sort of central southern Ukraine. Okay, so can we start at the beginning here with Mariupol? We've heard so much about this place as it's been just relentlessly attacked by Russia. What was Mariupol like before the war started? Before the first parts of war started, it was a peaceful port town. I mean, I never really must have imagined it would become the focal point of uh, the biggest land war in Europe since 1945. It always had a sword hanging over it after the Russians first backed that kind of separatist move around the Donbass because Russian positions stopped a fair degree short of Mariupol but kind of threatened over it and every time the separatist war flared up in the east over the last eight years there would always be a concern that maybe the Russians or their sort of 
pretty well obviously backed separatist proxies would make a run for Mariupol. But I don't think it ever really imagined that it would be levelled and kind of churned to dust in the way that seems to have happened over the last two months. Yeah, what kind of damage are we talking about here? Well, I mean, we've seen whole neighbourhoods pummeled by Russian shelling. We have seen the drama theatre, which was an enormous bomb shelter for women and children, possibly in their hundreds, massively slammed by what seemed to be a half-ton bomb. Despite the fact that that theatre had the word children written in deity, written in Russian, in huge letters on either side of it, so that anybody flying over it potentially could see that, or they could see it if they were observing it from a drone or from a satellite. You know, it's hard to explain to people how a a civilian series of neighbourhoods like that could be so utterly, utterly flattened. The focus of so much of this fighting, once the Russians began to exert greater control over its districts, became the Azovstal steel plant, which is the large and sprawling industrial area. Uh, Quite well, you might say, fortified because it is essentially an industrial facility, so strongly built, able to withstand blasts. And it had initially, when the war began, become a bomb shelter for some people, but then slowly became pretty much the place for the last stand of Ukrainian forces. But with them, the Ukrainian forces had civilians, women and children, and the elderly in that bomb shelter too. The civilians there appear to have been joined by some wounded Ukrainian soldiers seeking shelter there too. And this kind of became the last stand of Ukrainian units and Ukrainian civilian life in this once peaceful port city. But that did not stop the relentless bombardment of the Russians. And it became a place which Vladimir Putin seemed to initially want to destroy and then said he would just seal it off and, quote, not let a fly get in or out, and now appears to be hitting it extremely hard again. But the glimmer of light that did emerge was the possibility that people might get out of wider Mariupol, but also Azovstal too. Yeah, can you describe how those conversations kind of came to be and and how eventually people were able to leave the steel plant? To safety. Yeah, I mean, you know, this has been a process that's occurred predominantly in private. There have been some very public bids to get people out. There have been countless, it seems, attempts to establish a humanitarian corridor out of Mariupol, and they have uh, uh, been flawed because there's been, frankly, it seems, no real good faith from the Russians to let people out safely. And it seems like some corridors have been attacked uh, as they were formed and people attacked as they tried to get out. So we've seen ourselves here at the evacuee reception centre in Zaporizhia, the slow drip of people coming out um, on their own auspices, on their own steam, in their own cars, Mm. running the gauntlet from the checkpoints that were on the outskirts uh, of Mariupol that lead all the way to Ukrainian-held territory through areas that Russia has just recently taken since the war began. And so the hope was that possibly a meeting in Moscow between the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres and Russian President Vladimir Putin, that that might lead to some sort of change in what seems to be Russia's position of just not letting people out, period, regardless of the humanitarian reasons. And so discussions continued in private and there was a lot of hopes by the Ukrainians this would get underway. And then we began to hear that maybe something was going to give. And a very optimistic statement emerged um, over the weekend from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky that 8am on Monday we would start to see that evacuation happen. 
perhaps a little too optimistic, but slowly over the past hours, days, we've seen these buses, a small number of them, initially containing just the Azovstal steel plant evacuees, just over a hundred of them. Mm. Those buses seem to have begun their crawl out of Mariupol. And it was today, middle of the afternoon, that five of them turned up here in Zaporizhia. And I think there was two emotions. Relief that this, what should be relatively easy task, had been achieved. Um, but I think also possibly a recognition that that was just so much more complex than it really should need to be. Mm. A modern army like Russia's should easily accept a humanitarian corridor to get people who don't want to be in their combat zone out and that's been impossible since the war began. And this small number getting out is is a is a good start, you might argue, but also a reflection of how complex the task has been. Yeah, just a start. Uh, so, what are some of those people that have made it to Zaporizhia? What are they telling you about what they experienced there? I mean, it's extraordinary because you'd think you would hear a litany of horror stories, but really, we met people today who have spent two months in the dark in a basement. And so the experience they've had has been relatively monotonous, horrifyingly awful, of course, just unspeakably terrifying, but not a series of shocking daily dramas. So one woman we spoke to, uh, Anna, uh, a French teacher, who was seen on one of the videos filmed by the Ukrainian military with her six-month-year-old son, Svetoslav, just turned six months the day before the video was shot, and shown on a bus leaving Mariupol. And then we saw her coming off a different bus here in Zaporizhia. How do you feel now? Uh, Tired? Now I feel happy and exhausted. <laughs> because two months are in basic... How do you live for two months in a basement with a four-month-old boy? And, you know, her horror has been two months in the dark and dealing with the daily difficulties of feeding him, getting him warm water and milk. Thanks to our militars, we had enough food, we had uh, something to drink. At one point, she said they had to use a candle to heat water. Oh, my God. Those Ukrainian soldiers, she said, managed to get them diapers. Wow. What was your most scary moment? What was your hardest moment? When the bombs were attacking us. The biggest thing I think I, I recall from speaking to her was her reflection that now the scariest word for her, and she said the French word. L'avion, how to say She said uh, the scariest word for her is l'avion, which is French for an airplane. And that's a, a noise now, she says, that when she hears it, she now reflexively curls up and takes cover because she associates it with... Uh, with bombing. No, it's just psychologically, no, but after everything will be fine, yeah. And what are you going to tell him when he's older? I just tell him that he was really very, very brave yeah. boy. Very brave. He's very calm. He He's the best child in the world, I yeah. can say. He's idol. He's sleeping well, so yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's all you can all ask for. Time. Exactly. Yeah. And anyway, she wasn't the only person we spoke to. <laughs> Olga, who's age 78, um, we met her coming off the bus here, and even she was... I said, you know, how are you finding sunlight again? And she said, oh, it's pretty hard. I'm not much, I can't really see very much. Oh, the eyes have to adjust. Totally, totally. Still finding it hard to adjust. And she was carrying two 
plastic bags, what would have been normally shopping. And in there you could see just the remnants of a little bit of a plastic cup, some medicine, tissue. And this is her entire life, basically, that she took into that basement and emerged with the same fragments. And then she sort of later on sat down and we talked a little bit longer. I think the biggest fear for her was what comes next because hmm. age 78 alone she kept saying i am here completely alone no family it seemed to pick her up and you know help her move on right her leg which had been wounded and wasn't really healing because she has diabetes that that would make her she called herself half paralyzed i think it was sort of slightly rhetorical but i think it spoke to how vulnerable she felt and how difficult it will be for her just to pick up and move on because her life in Mariupol is gone and the hell that she's been through just to survive all that is obviously going to live with her. We were able to, you know, ask her, is there anything particularly you want? And her face did light up at the word chocolate. <laughs> so, you know, everyone's still fairly in need of support when they can get it. More of my conversation with Nick Payton Walsh after the break. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. You mentioned this is just a small fraction of people that we're in that steel plant and we're in the city. What is next for the people left behind? What does their immediate future look like? Yeah, I mean, it's bleak, to be honest. We don't know precisely how many people are left in the steel plant. We do know that a battle is raging around there. There was a brief ceasefire that let this first batch out, but then it appears to have been an intense onslaught by the Russians and the Ukrainians trying to hold them off. The Ukrainians say they killed five Russians during that fighting, and the Russians were sort of bragging about how they'd entered 20 separate buildings in the Azov-style steel complex. But then there's the bigger question of the thousands of civilians trapped in Mariupol. This is a place where the utilities are shattered, where most buildings have some sort of destruction uh, visible upon them, where disease has been warned of being an enormous problem that's just going to escalate in the weeks ahead for anybody still mm. surviving there. And then, of course, you've got Russian occupation, the violence and persecution that brings, um, and then the basic problems of the continuing fight that happens to be around as of Stalin, perhaps in other parts of the city as well. So the hope had been that the UN and Red Cross would establish 
this corridor for these 100 desperate people from Azovstal, and then that might be able to repeat as a process frequently, getting more and more people out. And, you know, I think there's still hope that that could happen, but you have to bear in mind there's 106 is the most precise number we've heard about people who managed to get out have taken a couple of days to do so right. and slow, complex moving. And so I think the idea of Moscow suddenly throwing its arms open wide and saying, hey, all tens of thousands, maybe 100,000 people who might want to leave Mariupol, you can all go, I think is a little distant. There had been a hope, you know, David, that there would be parts of the city's civilians trying to leave that would just latch on to this convoy as it went out. And that simply didn't happen. Hmm. This was small, just five buses and just the people from Azovstal, from what we could make out. And so definitely not, today at least, the start of some exodus. And, you know, if this wasn't confusing and difficult enough to pull off, there's been accusations that the Russians are, what, forcibly taking Ukrainians into Russian-held territory elsewhere? What what do we know about that? Yeah, I mean, we know, really, to be honest, what has emerged from anybody who's had contact from the outside world once they've got into Russia. But this is the thing. It's not as simple as saying you want to get out of Mariupol and finding yourself in Ukrainian-held territory. The Russians have been establishing what they call a humanitarian corridor of their own towards Russia, mm. down which people don't seem to have left by choice. And so those who've tried to get out have kind of had this binary risk where they could end up going to Ukrainian-held territory, which I think the vast majority of them have chosen to do, or they could end up being sent to Russia. And then the horror stories begin to multiply of people put through filtration camps where their sort of potential affiliation to the government or the Ukrainian military are then assessed. The absurd Russian justification for this war is that Ukraine is sort of brimming with Nazis, which is an absurd concept. But their rationale when these people are forcibly removed is that they need to be sort of re-educated. And so that's left, I think, great fear amongst those who are making this decision to leave. They might end up being turned right rather than left, i.e. towards Russia rather than Ukraine. But this is where it all leads to a a very dark place where you're simply not guaranteed a passage to safety, maybe a passage into the arms of the very people who've tried to destroy you and your home. That's really horrifying for sure. So for those first batch of people that ended up in Zaporizhia from the steel plant, what is next for them? What do their next few weeks look like? Yeah, look, I mean, some of them were Frankly, some of them turn up in the hotel where we're staying. They, oh, really? Yeah, I mean, oddly enough, I was interviewing um, somebody who just got off the bus, Anna, with her son, and then just sort of going through the footage of the interview she gave to us, I went to grab some food, got in the lift, and then so did she with her son, and I sort of had to double take as though wow. suddenly I'm re <laughs> meeting her again in circumstance in her own hotel. So look, the Ukrainian government, for this small number of people, have clearly put resources in to look after them and make sure they're okay. And there are resettlement programs around the country where people who've been kicked out of their homes by the Russian advance are finding new temporary places to live. And so that's a wonderful story of society pulling together to help people out. But you've got to remember, you know, this is possibly permanent for some people whose homes have been flattened. And they may want to go back and rebuild, but that may not be possible in the immediate future. And so, yeah, what kind of city is even left? Absolutely. How do you take your six month old son 
back to Mariupol if it's rubble. And so these are people having to rebuild their lives from scratch to think about new hometowns, think about new worlds, think about new futures. And that adds entirely to the, I think, the ferocity uh, of loathing that you can see so commonly now in Ukraine against Russia. Yeah, well, Nick Payton Walsh, thanks for being there and bringing us their stories. One more note before we go. We're going to keep an eye on next Monday, May 9th. That is the day Russians celebrate their win over the Nazis in World War II. It's known there as Victory Day. And according to U.S. and Western officials, it's on that day that Russian President Vladimir Putin could formally declare war on Ukraine. Remember, he's been calling this a, quote, special military operation. A formal declaration would allow him to call up more reserve troops as Russian forces continue to struggle on the battlefield. You can subscribe to CNN Five Things wherever you listen for the very latest. Tug of War is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by me, David Rind, along with Audrey Horowitz and Nathan Miller. Felicia Patikin is the senior producer and Megan Marcus is the executive producer. Special thanks to Ashley Lusk and Elizabeth Roberts. I'll talk to you next time. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week on The Assignment, with me, Audie Cornish. Kara Swisher and I spoke before a live audience of students and professors at the Sign Institute of Policy and Politics at American University. The former tech reporter for The Wall Street Journal is on a massive book tour. Her memoir is titled Burn Book, A Tech Love Story. It's not the tech that's the problem. It's the people manipulating the tech. So I guess you could say I'm an activist. I'm an activist for unaccountable power, not being unaccountable. Listen to The Assignment with Audie Cornish on Spotify.